Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air. Still trying to deny that someone is out to kill him, radio host Lee Garrett has barely escaped serious injury after his throat spray was switched with bleach. Police detective Cheryl Davis has been assigned to the case, but Lee can't be sure she's really on his side. Now, here's Chapter 9. The last day of a shitty year. He'd spent the morning show doing the traditional look back at the city's big news stories of the year and taking a few listener calls about the highlights in their personal lives, but in the back of his mind was the story he didn't mention, threats to the life of a local radio personality named Lee Garrett. Would that qualify as a big item, or just another media tidbit to ignore over a bowl of Cheerios? His own news department didn't even know the whole story. Maddie had warned the staff to watch for strangers, but she'd left out any mention of the bleach in the spray bottle for the sake of Detective Davis's investigation. The news staff was preoccupied anyway. The new employee, Dale Lawson, showed up at 7 o'clock and spent the rest of the morning leaning over shoulders. Larry Wise brought her into CTBX control after the 7.30 newscast to introduce her to Lee. "'I'm surprised to see you here today,' Lee said. "'Well, I don't start on the air until Monday, but I thought it was a good idea to sit in on things for a day or two first, get a feel for the newscast formats and everything. "'It's New Year's Eve. You don't have any better place to be?' "'Apparently not.' Her pale blue eyes acquired a layer of frost. "'Well, you two can get acquainted later,' Wise said. "'We've got work to do.' Lee turned back to the music computer. He didn't even look to see if she had a nice ass. Part of his mind filed an impression of mediocrity, a mid-brown pantsuit over a white top on a slim figure, light brown hair cut mid-length, average features, thin lips, or maybe that was just because of the impression he'd made on her. Too bad.' He didn't want her there, hadn't asked for a partner, and he damn well wasn't going to pretend otherwise. After nine o'clock, he should have spent some time telling Lawson what she needed to know about the morning show. He went to do his production shift. Then he drifted over to Chuck Norwood's office. New Year's Eve in Whitefish tonight, Norwood said. Are you sure you're up to it, Lee? What do you mean, up to it? I'm not sick, Chuck. I know, it's just that... You must get nervous in crowds of strangers, not knowing... It's a charity casino night, a crowd of rich business people. I'll be emceeing from a stage half the time. You think someone's going to, what, cap me in the middle of all that? What if something did happen, right in the middle of a big crowd of people? Jesus, Chuck, you're not worried about me. You're afraid of the bad publicity. Good God! Norwood blinked. No, of course I'm worried about you, Lee. But who knows what kind of psychos we're dealing with here. I only meant that other innocent people could be hurt, too. Maybe we have a responsibility. To keep me locked away where I can't be a danger to anybody. Lee bristled. I don't believe this. He stormed out and started toward Ellis's office, but realized it wasn't a smart move. If she shared Norwood's paranoia, she might just order him to stay home. Instead, he packed up his gear for the day and left the building. The air was bitter. A cold snap had moved in overnight, dropping the temperature to minus 25 Celsius. When he got into his car and keyed the ignition, the engine turned over twice and no more. He turned the key again, got one reluctant crank, and then let off on the switch. Shit! Unbelievable! 
He could ask one of his co-workers to give him a boost, but the thought of going back into the building didn't appeal to him. Sometimes a cold car battery could be brought back to life by using it. He flicked the headlights on and decided to give it five minutes. It was a bitch sitting in the silent cold. When the time was up, he crossed his fingers and turned the key. The starter lasted longer, and on the fourth turn the engine kicked and caught. He blew a noisy stream of air at the windshield. It had fogged up, but he wiped a patch clear with a gloved hand. He kept the engine at high revs for another few minutes, then put the car into gear. With a buck of protest, it rolled ahead, stiff tires jolting over frozen ridges of snow. The car had been due for a tune-up months ago. In the driveway of his apartment, he popped the hood. The battery connections had a lot of oxidized crap on them. He dug through the bottom of the hallway closet for his toolbox and a rusty battery charger, then cleaned up the battery posts and leads with a wire brush. There were eight hours before he had to leave. The half-hour drive out of town to the casino night would provide some charge, too, if he didn't run too many accessories. The Volvo had seat warmers, but he wouldn't be able to spare the juice for that. The cold had deepened by evening. The car springs creaked. Even the foam of the cloth seats was stiff. Steam rose ramrod straight from chimneys and storm sewers. There'd been a brief snowfall mid-afternoon, just enough to dust the existing snowbanks with a coating that sparkled in the headlights, and Lee actually enjoyed the drive through the silent darkness. Loud music leaked from the doors of the clubhouse as he hurried in from the car. Diamond bright stars told him the night was going to get colder still. Just outside the hall entrance, he walked through a wall of cigarette smoke. By law, smokers were supposed to keep well away from the door, but these addicts had decided to risk a fine rather than frostbite. As he emerged into clearer air, he bumped into Bob Laframboise, one of the casino night's organizers. "'Lee, good to see you, buddy!' The man's smile made his bald scalp wrinkle. "'Thanks for coming. Can I get you a drink?' It was the only question to which Laframboise allowed room for an answer. "'Later,' Lee smiled back. A quick look around the room showed a few dark suits, but the small-town dress code included a lot of sweaters. "'Great, sure, any time. Just ask. So what we're going to do?' Laframboise turned and started to walk. Lee kept up, but it wasn't easy through the crush of bodies. The gaming tables took more space than the room could afford to lose. "'We're going to just have you get on the stage for a minute, and we'll thank you folks for helping us out. We'll get started in just a second. Hold on, i got to ask Max something.' The big man was swallowed up by a mass of shoulders, bobbing heads, and swaying beer glasses. Lee gave up the pursuit and made his way to the side of the stage. Overhead, the blue-on-white of the CTBX logo clashed with the orange banner of the brewery sponsoring the event. Ken Cousins Beer Company, unfortunately. Lee scanned the oscillating sea of heads. Most were turned away from the stage, but he frowned to see Elliot Dean talking to a short blonde woman. A few other faces were familiar, though he couldn't place them. Next to the stage, he nodded at a young man in a black T-shirt who looked to be putting the final touches on the PA equipment and smiled at the tech guy's requisite earring. Bob Laframboise appeared out of nowhere and took his arm. "'Sure you don't want a drink? Okay, we're just about to start. I have to check with a few more people, that's all.' Then he was gone again. At 9.50, only twenty minutes behind schedule, the speeches got underway. Lee wasn't happy to share the stage with Ken Cousins. As always, Cousins looked like a fashion star, modeling a light cream-colored sports jacket over a blue turtleneck that set off his eyes to perfection. The warmth in his voice and smile vanished when he passed the microphone to Lee. The blonde eyelashes didn't blink. Lee's best suit suddenly felt like a cheap rag as he watched Cousins strut away. 
but he knew that he had the advantage when it came to using his face and voice to good effect. He drew more laughs and more applause than Cousins, and stepped off the stage feeling pleased with himself. The beer company rep had vanished into the crowd. Then Bob Laframboise was at Lee's elbow, asking if he was ready for a brew. This time Lee laughed and nodded, while the band began to thump through some loud tune-up riffs. He made announcements from time to time through the evening, but otherwise he spent the time trading trivialities with people who recognized him, and turning down invitations to dance, as graciously as he could. Later he even tried his luck at Blackjack, at a table where the dealer was a redhead in a black sheath gown who offered views of more than just the cards. He was sure she didn't need to lean over quite so far to retrieve the chips, but he appreciated her zeal. Her creamy skin was perfect, and Lee seemed to have the prime vantage point to observe it. He wondered about that, until she mentioned offhandedly that she often won contests on his show. He recognized her name immediately. Did she think the display of her wares would improve her success? If so, it was wasted effort. Lee had no control over the way contest calls lined up, and didn't even ask names until he had a winner. He hoped her attention was less mercenary than that. Ken Cousins' appearance at her side was a splash of cold water. "'How's it going, Wendy?' he touched her arm possessively. "'Great, Kenny. Have you met Lee Garrett?' "'We've known each other a long time,' Lee answered for him, but the two men didn't look at each other. Cousins gave a smirk and said, "'You have to watch out for these radio guys, Wendy. They're smooth talkers, but what he's looking to handle isn't your cards.' He leaned over to plant a light kiss on a cheek that was already turning red with embarrassment and drew a hand over his head, though it was impossible that a hair could be out of place. Then he strolled away to find a new audience. Wendy gave an awkward smile. "'Don't pay attention to Ken when he gets like that, Mr. Garrett. Lee. He can be a pig when he drinks.' "'Have you known each other long?' he asked. "'A few months.' "'He can be very charming when he wants to be, but he doesn't have any claim on me, if that's what you mean.' She flashed a smile of bright teeth and full red lips, but Lee's head had cooled. It was a bad idea to get involved with somebody who had his work number on speed dial, unless he was prepared for the hookup to last longer than a night or two, and he wasn't. With real regret, he told her he was going to call it a night. Her crestfallen face said she wasn't sure what she'd done wrong. She managed a cheerful, "'Good night,' then by accident or design— she leaned her folded arms on the table and gave Lee one last lingering look at what her body offered. A shiver ran through him as he turned away. The old rutting buck was never far below the surface. He found Bob Laframboise, who gave his back a friendly slap that propelled him halfway to the door, and he nearly left without retrieving his coat from the coat check. The cold was the kind that made nostrils recoil. The wind had picked up, and it raked like claws across his exposed skin, peppering him with sharp snow crystals off the roof of the barn-like municipal services building next door. He pulled the collar of his coat around his ears and worried about whether his car would start. It teased him with a half-dozen lethargic cranks, but then the engine caught, chugged a little, and finally smoothed out. He left the heater fan off. The engine would need all the help it could get to come close to running temperature. It was going to be a cold drive home. He thought he might shave a few minutes off the trip if he took the old highway instead of backtracking to the new section of the Trans-Canada. The old two-lane route might be more sheltered, too. The strong wind had begun to cause whiteouts in open spaces. The ancient pavement was rough, and strips of packed snow gleamed in the headlights. They shouldn't be a problem as long as he stayed alert. The cold would take care of that. 
In the meantime, he'd have to think warm thoughts, maybe about Wendy. There was a woman who could keep a man warm. The first sign of trouble came fifteen minutes later. The engine suddenly bucked and kicked, and when he tried to give it more gas, it threatened to stall. His heart leapt into his throat as he gently coaxed the throttle back to a smoother level, though it wasn't enough to maintain speed on the slope he was climbing. There was another kick of a misfired cylinder or two, then he crested the hill. The engine settled down. He realized he'd been holding his breath. The relief was short-lived. The engine began to buck again and abruptly quit. With an explosive curse, he decided to try the starter with the clutch pushed in, while the car was still rolling down the slope. The motor turned over, coughed, turned again, kicked again. He used his lightest touch on the gas, afraid to flood the engine, but was only rewarded with a mocking chuff as a single cylinder caught a spark. Quickly losing speed, he had no choice but to pull off the highway or face pushing the car onto the shoulder by himself. The crunch of the frozen gravel and snow sounded like defeat. Without the noise of the engine, he heard a low shriek at the edges of the windows from the rising wind, and the shiver that went through him wasn't from cold alone. He was screwed. What could he do if the car wouldn't start? Did he dare walk for help? There'd been a couple of side roads just before he got to the hill, but any houses on them might be a long way from the highway. McCharles Lake was far to his right by now. Looking ahead, there were no lights in sight. The thick streams of snow blown across the road could have hidden a small subdivision. Unless the next houses were very close, walking would be suicide. The wind chill had to be the equivalent of the minus fifties, enough to crisp exposed skin in minutes. Suddenly he didn't feel so smug about not owning a cell phone. He popped the inside hood release, knowing the futility of it. He was no mechanic. He wasn't going to stare the engine into life. Stretching to reach under the passenger seat, he remembered that he'd thrown out the toque he usually kept there because it had begun to stink. Damn! The coat he was wearing didn't have a hood. Hoods were nerdy, like toques. Now he had neither. Without them, his ears would be raw meat to the wind outside. He yanked open the glove compartment and grabbed the flashlight. It was dead. In a rage, he nearly hurled the useless piece of junk away, but a part of him recognized the sour taint of panic. That would be the beginning of the end. He wasn't giving in to that. He'd have to hope he could see the engine by the headlights reflected from the snow. There was still no sign of other cars. He couldn't be the only one who'd take the old highway, could he? Except it was New Year's Eve. There wasn't going to be a hell of a lot of traffic anywhere. He swallowed hard and opened the door. Glacial air snatched at him. The meager warmth of the car interior was gone in an instant, and he staggered back as a gust took him. Hunching his face into his shoulder, he worked his way to the front of the car and raised the hood. It immediately tried to blow shut. He barely caught it in time. It could have broken his fingers. The engine compartment was a black pit. There were no street lights. The moon had nearly set and was in the wrong direction. He had no choice but to tug off his gloves and feel around for anything obviously wrong, a loose spark plug wire or something. He was cautious about touching the engine block, but it didn't burn him. A bad sign. It was cooling off already. The most he could do was push the spark plug wires firmly into place. In the days when cars had carburetors, he'd sometimes sprayed ether into their throats for a quick start. Not anymore. As he hurried back to the driver's seat, the wind almost slammed the door on his foot. His hand was shaking and could barely grip the ignition key. The engine turned over, but didn't catch. He waited a couple of minutes. It might be flooded. Should he try to drain the cylinders by cranking the engine with the gas pedal held to the floor? No, the problem had started while he was climbing a hill. 
Maybe there was a clog in a fuel line. He gambled and turned the key, pumped the pedal a couple of times. If there was no clog, he'd flood the engine for certain, but he didn't know what else to try. He keyed the starter again, kept it cranking. Nothing. Again. Again. The engine revs were slower, the battery starting to drain. It probably hadn't picked up a full charge after being nearly flat that morning. A dead battery would end his last chance of getting out of this on his own. But what was the point of waiting until the engine got too cold to start? He tried it again, and once more, a long one. The engine was barely turning over by then. It gave only feeble grunts, a dying animal. Trying to keep calm, he pushed the door open again and gritted his teeth into the wind. Maybe he hadn't tightened the battery well enough. Maybe he could shift the clamps and get a better connection. But they wouldn't budge, and the metal was too cold to grip for long. He slammed the hood and pounded on it, screaming obscenities into the night, but the tantrum lasted only seconds. With ice clutching at his heart, he climbed back into the frozen block of metal and plastic and fabric that was no longer a moving vehicle, no longer going to take him home. The full weight of his predicament struck home. The temperature was below freezing in the car, letting all the heat out he'd let the first taste of death in. No point trying to call it anything else. The wind would suck every trace of warmth from the car, and then his body. He would get sleepy. Then, if help didn't come, he would die. Pain. Suffering. Death. The words flashed into his brain, the warning from the skins. Would stupid bad luck finish the job for them? Needing to do something, he rummaged through the glove compartment. He'd once stocked it with a candle and matches, a plastic silver space blanket, and even a couple of chocolate bars. Only trash remained. The chocolate bars had satisfied a mid-morning craving, and the rest had probably shifted to his kitchen during the last hydro blackout. There was nothing there to help him. His life now depended on someone coming along a tired and patched stretch of asphalt and stopping to check on a derelict hulk off to one side. Shit! He reached out to the dashboard and fumbled for the knob that activated the car's four-way warning flashers. He should have done that right away. The battery would still run them for a while. Without them, the car would look abandoned. The shock of his oversight frightened him into another spasm of shivering. He pulled his legs under the coat, tugged the collar over his head, and pulled up the zipper. A long time later, he pressed a button on his watch. Almost midnight. Almost a new year. In another world of bright lights and heat, people would soon be kissing. He found himself imagining a sun-drenched beach with Wendy tucked into the briefest of bikinis. Her body kept rhythm to a song he couldn't hear. He looked into her face and it was Michaela's face beneath the long hair that was now a much lighter shade of strawberry. Michaela flirtatiously ran away from him and around the corner of a small wooden change house that jutted out of the sand. He chased after her but his feet were clumsy and slow. When he rounded the corner she had vanished. He twisted in the opposite direction to head her off, but missed her again, and again, never catching more than a tantalizing flash of skin. Then, as he turned another corner, she was there. But no, it wasn't Michaela, it was Candace Ross, with a hurt look on her face. He sensed that she was naked, but below her neck there was only blankness, like something hidden in the blind spot of his eye. She gave one more sad look and turned her back to walk away down the beach. He tried to call out, but no sound came from his mouth. Instead, there was the noise of a motor, someone coming in a car to pick her up, perhaps. He wanted her to stay, but he couldn't make himself heard above the sound of the car and the wind and the crunch of tires on gravel. Gravel? That seemed wrong somehow. And wind? A cold wind? 
Jesus, he'd fallen asleep. He shook off the dream and listened to the icy voice of the real wind. Had he really heard a car, or was it only part of the dream? Frantically, he tried to unzip his coat, but his fingers were too numb to cooperate. It took forever to inch the zipper downward until at last he could force his head out of the opening. As he did, he heard the sound of wheels on gravel again, and motor noises that quickly faded. He struggled to free his arms and legs. His throat was too dry to call for help. The windows were completely frosted. Was that a hint of red tail lights shrinking in the distance? No! God, no! Someone had stopped and then gone on without helping him, without saving his life. His mind struggled to comprehend it. His hands clawed half-heartedly at the windshield, but mere fingernails could barely scratch through the thickening frost. It was too much. His eyes teared from a draft of icy air. It must have been that. And his body convulsed in helpless horror. Sometime later he fumbled the coat back over his head, but he could no longer work the zipper. He hugged himself tightly and screwed his eyes shut. His mind reached out for that car in the night, raced up the highway, caught up with it, then soared ahead through the darkness until the lights of the city appeared and he was swooping along railway tracks, straight up his own street and through a lighted doorway to the inside. He expected warmth and the comfort of familiar things around him, but it was unexpectedly empty. There was nothing but bare walls. In confusion, he took flight again, racing through deserted streets to the radio station. There was no one there, the control room, the equipment was gone, no music playing, no talk, no papers, no posters, no welcome, nothing. As his mind floated there, the room began to blur, the corners flattened, windows turned opaque and the walls became translucent, everything began to melt into one great gray sameness, and he became aware of a buzzing in his ears. No, the swell and retreat of many noises, none of them distinguishable. They swirled around him. The floor had lost its solidity, and he was sinking into it, drawn downward as if in quicksand. The buzzing babble retreated. Darkness closed in. He was alone in a universe without sensation. Once, a long time later, he heard a noise, a noise from far off that sounded like the cry of a dinosaur in a Hollywood fantasy. A long, screaming wail, a snort of air, and the rumble of a distant volcano. Then there was silence. In Chapter 10 of Dead Air, as Lee Garrett recovers from his brush with death, he discovers that he just may have a guardian angel. I hope you're enjoying the book, but if you can't wait to find out what happens, you can buy your own copy of Dead Air. Find out all the details at scottoverton.ca. Thanks to audionautics.com for the music, and thank you for listening. I'm Scott Overton.